growth pains. Hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of Growth Pains where we talk about how we all screw up when growing our businesses. I'm your host, Ignacio Gallegos, also known as Nacho. Today, uh, we'll be talking about topics such as trying to avoid burnout uh, when there's always more to do, dealing with information overload, prioritizing quality over quantity, especially in the early days, and early stage funding. My guest today is Sansha Chahin, if I pronounce that correctly, give me a, give me a clap, Sansha. Uh, former VP of Marketing at Typeform and Hotjar. Uh, earlier this year, Sansha became the co-founder of Oliva, an online platform offering meaningful therapy for busy people, which is much needed for this uh, bizarre year we've been experiencing. So thank you for joining me, man. How are you? Thanks for having me, Nacho. Yeah, very good, thanks. All right, dude, let's get it started. Um, We usually start with a true or false, where I try to make people uncomfortable, but I I don't think I ever nailed it, but let me see if we can can get to that today. (laughs) So let's start with the first one, just like true or false, and then we briefly talk to it and keep moving. So marketing is one of the professions that is most prone to burnouts. True or false? I wouldn't know. Let's go for true, just because it's my experience. <laughs> you you think it's you think it's true in a way? I I man, I think so, but it's very self centered of me, right? But look, I think I think we have as humans, we have this habit to think that everything is around, around us <laughs> yeah. and our and what we know. So uh, I think it's very likely this is going on in all sorts of professions, um, from yeah, you know from teaching to plumbing to marketing to everything. Um, but marketing is what I know. And I've seen a lot of it. Let's put yeah, it I think what, what I find a bit particularly stressful sometimes is that there is a portion of your work that's not really, or of your output really, or of your results that is not entirely up to you, right? Like you could actually put in like high quality work, do everything that, and, and if the external factors and everything around it is not there, then it still doesn't pay off, right? So that's a bit stressful, but true. Great point. It's uh, for a lot of, of jobs, I guess it's similar. No, that's a good point. And just to quickly add to that, I think also marketing is, is just changing all of the time. So I think that adds to the stress that you always have this knowledge debt. You know, if you're not constantly reading books and reading articles and listening to podcasts, yep, you're, we'll you're getting that. behind. So yeah, I think that can add to the stress. Yeah, yeah. All right, second one. And this one is a bit controversial. Uh, working in tech, either you are somebody or you are nobody. True or false? I'll go the idealistic route, false. Well, I think I think it is false, right? I, I as well, but that's you feel like that sometimes, don't you? This is it, right? There's reality and there's perception. Some would say the perception equals reality. Um, yeah. By by, without a doubt, it's not true, right? There are many many people contributing on many different levels uh, in significant ways um, who aren't these well-known personalities, right? That, yeah. So. Without a doubt, it's definitely not true. But I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be a name. I mean, this this idea of personal branding has just exploded uh, over the last uh, five years or five to ten years. So I think there's a lot of pressure on people. Yeah, true that. All right, man. The next one, and this one is, uh, is crowdsourced by a good friend of ours, Alex Yost. So uh, a kudos to him and a, a shout out. So this one, content marketing is a top of the funnel activity. True or false? <laughs> uh, false. How do you see it? I mean, it is a top of the funnel activity, but it's also a middle of the funnel activity, a bottom of the funnel activity, and yeah. actually even a, above the funnel activity, as I like to say sometimes. How, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by above the funnel? So look, I mean, 
top of the funnel awareness, you know, trying to get people to understand if there's a problem, something you can solve, etc. But I think there's there's also a lot of you can call it different things, right? Thought leadership, industry commentary, whatever it might be. I think even when people are quite far away from your funnel, um, there's still opportunities to to start planting seeds to to get involved in the conversation. Um, don't worry, I'm not trying to term uh, to coin a new term or anything. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be a good place to do it, though. That would be okay. Uh, and and okay, let's uh, do the the final question before we dive in your pains. And this is not a true or false, but this is a question. So. One thing that you are really, really bad at that uh, has come to you in the last, I don't know, in the last year or so that you can think of. So how much time do we have? <laughs> um, no, I think, so one thing, look, in, in the kind of work environment, right? Um, yeah. Something I've never been very good at is numbers off the top of my head. So if you put me on the spot and you talk, and it's quite funny, right? As a marketing leader. Oh, I'm awful at it as well. And I studied engineering. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I don't <laughs> want to go over any of your bridges. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I need time to digest numbers. I need to think about them. Uh, I need the help of a spreadsheet, a calculator. Yeah. Um, I'm not good off the top of my head. You're that guy that when people are just throwing percentages in meetings, you're like actually putting it in, in your calculator and see like, is, is it 10% really that, that it's like? It just doesn't make <laughs> sense to me immediately. It's quite funny because my yeah. my one of my sisters is an absolute maths genius. So she's like the opposite to me. Um, there so you go. I, I've got the short end of the, of the uh, straw there. Well, we all win some and we lose some, right? But uh, I Absolutely. think it's it's funny because I, I can understand math fairly well, but I need to th sit down and process it as well. It mm. doesn't come to me yeah. like from the top of Same. my brain. I don't have that. Exactly. Maybe it's just laziness, but it's not the way I think. <laughs> so <laughs> the first one, uh, the first pain we want to talk about today is avoiding burnout, specifically when there is this feeling that there's always more to do, right? So before diving into burnouts, which are a topic on their own and probably more of a pandemic than the actual pandemic, let's discuss the feeling first, right? Like the feeling that there is always more to do, right? This feeling is a constant sort of stress in our, most of our minds. And it's particularly stressful when you're starting a new company, like what you're doing now with Oliva. So how has this been for you uh, dealing with this one? Uh, so how does it feel right now? Or Yeah, in this in this stage that you're, you've been in Oliva for about eight months already, right? How has that been for you uh, while at time? Yes, yeah, so, so I mean, obviously starting your own company is exhausting, um, it's busy, you feel like you've never got a spare moment because for any spare moment you have, you're thinking about something else, right? You're thinking <laughs> about the next the next thing or I haven't done this thing or whatever it might be. But quite honestly, um, I'm the furthest away from, I felt from burnout for a long time being in this stage because I feel like I'm in control of one, my boundaries, which I think is a really, really important part of being in control of um, burnout. So I think a lot of people think that, you know, avoiding burnout is working less or taking more days off or, or you know, whatever it might be. But actually, I think it's it's less about the hours you work and how much you do and more about the boundaries you set and how how confident you are that you're sticking to those boundaries, you know, because that gives you a sense of um, uh, control, yeah. which uh, burnout is really the, the sense of a lack of control. Um, so, so that's one thing. I feel like you know, I'm 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 better now than I've ever been at creating and sticking to those to those boundaries. Definitely not perfect, but but it's been a learning exercise. Uh, and also, I'm I'm in a place where I chose to be. So I made the decision, a very conscious decision, to give up a well-paid job to be in this situation where I'm taking a lot more risks. And again, that gives me the sense of control, right? So I'm not. 
So although there's more risks and it's actually more dangerous, it 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 feels much better because because I'm taking control. So I think that sense of control is really important for avoiding the the, the feeling of burnout. So right now I feel good. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's not going to change because we've got a lot of um, stages ahead of us. Right? There's you know there's funding, there's growth, there's um, mis- mistakes. Uh, who knows lawsuits? You know who knows what's coming ahead of us. I hope no lawsuits. But um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff to come. So it's it's not to say that it's going to be like this forever. But right now, I feel in a in a good place. But in general, right? Because one thing is burning out, right? And the other thing is like knowing when to stop during your day, right? Because in, in a way, you could always do more, right? If you actually stayed three more hours, you could push out something else. If you actually stayed four more hours, you could. Are you good at yeah. setting those boundaries of saying, this is what I got today and I know there's 20 things else I could have, do- would have done, but I'm going to bed now? Yeah. So I wouldn't say good. I wouldn't say I'm <laughs> good at it. Uh, I'm definitely better at it. Um, so I used to be very bad at this. So I used to very much, um, you know, I would do probably 10 hours in the office and then I'll take my laptop home and, um, and uh and do another maybe three hours with my laptop maybe in front of the tv mm-hmm. um and you know just constantly just trying to do to do more and um that was not healthy that was definitely not healthy now i'm much much better at you know making sure at least i've done the things i need to do so i'll go home i generally won't get straight on the laptop i'll i'll do whatever i need to do i'll go for a walk i'll have a coffee whatever it might be make my dinner watch a bit of telly do all of that kind of stuff but then I'll carve out a little bit of time to focus on something that I want to I want to focus on. Um, but of course, it depends on the day, right? Some days you go to bed and you just stuff there's stuff going around your head and you can't really uh, avoid it. So um, yeah. it's it's not a static thing, you know. It's not like um, you always do it very well or you always do it very badly. It's something you have to remind yourself about and and practice over time. When you're saying that it's not static. Right, where you're saying that, hey, so it's actually it's ever evolving, and at some point you might get really good at it and part of your life, and then you go back on your old habits, right? And that's just our the way we work. Um, the other topic I wanted to an- mention is that you know time by now is far more valuable than money, and there's a lot of talk about people sharing their calendars, right? How they time box everything and books, <laughs> and how they put all of their uh, all of their things in every day. Like, are you one of those people that try to squeeze in like a thousand thirty minutes lots in a day and try to do everything every day, or are you more chilled about it and like take those long chunks to, uh, of time to focus on things? Yeah, it, it depends, right? So, for example, we're doing a lot of investor calls at the moment, and right. pretty much every day is just full of investor calls. Um, you know, there's not that many ways to avoid that unless you really want to elongate the process. Um, but let's say on a standard uh, week or month, um, yeah, I like to put bl- uh, focus blocks into my calendar, um, and I like to try and design it around where I feel I can be the most productive. So, for example, I'm more of a morning person than I am a afternoon and evening person. So I love to have mornings free to do project work. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a waste of my time if I'm doing lots of phone calls in the morning because. I could be using that that kind of thinking time better on on just one or two projects. Whereas after lunch, I start to uh, become pretty useless, and you're probably <laughs> going to get the most out of me, you know, um, kind of contributing to something rather than really driving a, a project forward. So I try and um, I try and design my calendar a little bit around that. But I, 
as I think most of us who put focus time into our calendars know, it's not that easy to protect that time. And you have yeah. to be pretty strict. <laughs> people grab it anyway, not, right? You can put it in yeah. bold letters with emojis, whatever <laughs> it, it is. People, matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. One little trick, though, which doesn't work so well now in Oliva because we're a very small team and you yeah, right. just lean over to talk to someone. But when, when I was working in bigger organizations, a great little tip is don't put focus time in those blocks. Make up a, a name. Yeah. Even if it's just a few initials or something like that, because yeah. when people Guilty. see focus time, they book over it. But if you put one, some yeah. random event name, they're like, okay, this is a real meeting. I'm not call call you Nacho, whatever, and then you're just exactly. like, have your own time. I agree, man. Exactly. That's a really, I actually did that today. So it's, oh, yeah? it's funny that you mentioned it. Um, nice. So um, there isn't enough time to do it all, right? Like that's just a fact of life. And, oh. and even if you just triple your team, quadruple your team, you're always shorthanded. You're always out of time. Like I'm sure you've experienced this. So prioritizing is absolutely key. What are your struggles and learnings in this area in prioritizing where to focus on and on what your teams should focus as well? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I think there's a reason there are many, many books and articles about and prioritization and frameworks and matrix. Exactly. You know, <laughs> there's a reason for this because it's a big topic that no one's really nailed up until now. Of course, there are there are different frameworks and I think you know some good project man management frameworks to do that. I, I like to work with... Um, the kind of Kanban uh, way of working. It, it really helps me because I, I'm a visual person. I love to see, right, what's everything in my backlog? What am I committing yeah. to this week? And, and what have I actually achieved? So that's a really simple method that works for me. Um, a book that I read some time ago that really helped me was um, The One Thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've read that, but it's yeah. um basic premise of, you know, Yes, you've got many, many things to do, but what is the one thing you could focus on now that's actually going to help you unlock the next things that you do? So don't think yeah. about the next things, but think about what's that one thing that you can you can do now. And um, that that was quite useful. And actually, in previous teams, um, I've experimented with um, in our kind of uh, daily updates, just asking the team not to say everything they're going to do, but just to say, right, this is the one thing for today or the one thing for uh -huh. this week. Because it, that's good. I love that. It, yeah, it works well. It works well. And the other thing for the recipient recipient of the information as well, because I mean, you know what it's like if if you ask somebody, "Hey, what are you up to today?" and they just read you their whole to do list, <laughs> you're not really taking that in. You're basically just getting proof they're working, which is not the yeah. way to 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 operate in a productive team, in my opinion. So, but when somebody says one thing, you can remember that. And you can challenge it or you can give feedback on it. You know, you can you can do something meaningful. So, exactly. so yeah, that's been quite helpful. No, I, th I think that's really good in, in general. I mean, one of the things about this uh, these frameworks or things that you read, right, is that they sound amazing when you're reading them and then in the everyday in the everyday life, you just fall off it, right? And so, so that yeah. little trick where you get your team used to it as well, it's really good because you just help each other stay on track of that, right? Yeah, right? So absolutely. I really like that idea. Usually... Um, when you ask somebody if they're if they're motivated, when, when they're motivated people, right? They'll say like, "Sure, I'm really busy, but I know that we still need to get this done, and it's fine. I can put in the extra hours." Somebody in your team, right? It's not easy in those scenarios to proactively, as a manager, say to someone, "Okay, you think you can handle it, but you know what? I've actually been looking at some signals here. Why don't you take a little, things a bit slower, and and you actually recover from this?" Have you managed to like proactively find these little signals in your team to say, guys, okay, I know you can do more, but let's scale it back a bit. Yeah, so um, to, take, to take a step back a little bit, um, 
I've got a kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, like an approach that I, uh, the way I think about people going above and beyond, right? So I don't think it's realistic to, to say to people, come in, do your nine to five, and then leave and then, you know, shut the door and then everything's done. Because the reality is, that's not why they're there. They're not working in startups just to do a nine to five, right? Yeah. They, they they want flexibility and with flexibility, flexibility happens on, on all sides, right? Um, so I, I don't think forcing that kind of old fashioned way of working just to kind of solve the problem of people overworking is necessarily the right thing to do. So I, I try not to say to people, look, come in at nine, you know, don't start don't start thinking until nine o'clock and then and then at six o'clock, shut your laptop. Doesn't matter what you're doing at that point, just shut your laptop, stop thinking about work and then go and, you know, get on with your life. I, I just don't think that's realistic because the yeah. types of profiles you hire into startups where you need people to really be contributing in a significant way to like building new ground. Um, those aren't the types of profiles in my experience that wanna just be able to shut the laptop at six o'clock. Um, yeah. you know, just whatever they're doing. But it is important everyone has boundaries. It is important that you don't get into bad habits or a habit being, you know, when you do it on a regular basis rather than just on a on a one-off. So if every day you're going above and beyond, something probably isn't isn't right. The way I like to think about it is, and the way I, I tell people in my team is if, because often the reason why it's hard for us to do something is because or to change our behavior is because we feel like we're doing somebody else a disservice and that's eventually going to do us a disservice because we're putting somebody else out, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, you can shift the dynamic a little bit. So one thing I say to my team is if you're constantly doing 150%, if you're constantly at 150%, your, what I think is 100% for you is actually your 150%. So when you do 100%, I think you're doing 50% or 75%. Yeah, do you know what right. I mean? So you're you're creating this false expectation. Uh, this false expectation exactly. Yeah. And the practical side of that is I have no idea how to do my hiring plan or my resource plan because I've got a team of people working at 150%. I think I only need 10 people whereas actually I need I need 15 people or whatever it might be. So you're actually not doing me a favor by doing this because you're you're making me blind to what I actually need in terms of resources. And I found that when talking to people in this kind of quite pragmatic way and putting the onus back on, well, actually, you're not doing me any favors at all by being at 150% all of the time. Yeah. That actually helps people um, justify to themselves, okay, I need to I need to make sure I know where my 100% is and not to constantly go over that. Sometimes, yes, but not constantly because it creates this false set of expectations. And I find that pragmatic way of... Uh, Talking about it with people helps people to um, to connect. No, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's uh, it's also for for people when they're starting a new job or whatever, or just joining the team. You want to impress everybody, right? But you need to be uh, to make sure that you're working at a rhythm that you can uh, that you can maintain, right? So so it's it's a super interesting absolutely. point. The other the other pain besides uh, burnouts I wanted to touch upon today was dealing with information overload. And you already talked a little bit about it when we were starting the the, the podcast in the in the tour falls. So blogs, newsletters, Slack communities, courses, books, media, you name it, right? Like keeping up with everything going on, it's really hard. And there is a lot of FOMO going around. So has this been an important source of stress uh, in your career as a marketer? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> quite simply. Um, yeah, look, um, when you get started out, everybody's talking about the hundred books that they've read you yeah. know, in the space and some people creating blogs about, you know, here's my summary of the, you know, my top 1000 books or something like that. And you're like, so imagine that you're starting out and already you feel like you're a thousand books behind. And not only that, every day new books are being published. Yeah, yeah. So you're a thousand books behind and new books are being added, <laughs> and you're, added and, to the And pilot. that's like five years in, in like reading time, right? So you're actually, yeah. yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And then you start looking for these hacks. Like how can I, uh, and this is how things like um, Blinkist and- um, Yeah, and, audiobooks uh, and so on. Audio, exactly. All of this stuff has been created, which are great. But then you start to hear these different opinions like, well, actually, I think those um, those summary type apps, are they're not you're not really getting the information you need to get from the book. You actually need to read the whole book end to end. And then you hear this advice saying, well, actually, you need to get into skimming. Like the best readers are the ones who can skim and get through oh, the book. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what do I do here? What do I do? So you end up kind of spending most of your time thinking, benchmarking yourself against others rather than actually seeking out the knowledge that you need to feel like you're doing a good job. You just constantly feel like you're doing a bad job because there's always something else to know. And there's always something you haven't read. Yeah. And then let's add on top of this. And I think this is where it especially happens in marketing. I mean, I'm sure other spaces, but I think in marketing in particular, there is so much content being created every single day, you know, <laughs> articles, podcasts, um, yeah. all of this. And everyone talks about it. And marketers love to talk about it. Oh, I heard this great podcast. I read this great book. I read this great article. And you feel this, or at least I did. I felt this pressure to to have read and listened to all of that same content um, as well. Otherwise, uh, it's like I've skipped uh, lectures at university. That's yeah. the kind of feeling, you know? Yeah. So I think no, that's, 100%. Um, it's a tricky one. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and I think one of the things that increases this stress is that we tend to think that we're the only idiots that are not nailing it, right? Because, uh, and, it's, and it's only you who's struggling because you're either unorganized or lazy and everybody else plans, plans their time way better than you because it yeah. seems like, you know, uh, and to be fair, like many people sharing others' contents out there are not just read a headline and then just, just schedule a tweet, right? Oh, cool yes. headline, schedule a tweet, done. But that gives you the sensation of like, hey, how does this guy keep up his job like uh, as an executive in a massive company and at the same time publishes and you have interns and, and many people around that. So do, do you feel like everybody, or did you feel, maybe not right now, right, but earlier in your career that you were the only one not keeping up and everybody was? Um, yeah, I guess I did. I think it is a little bit lonely like that. You kind of, you feel like, um, I think especially as a manager um, or a department lead, yeah. you, well, at least in my experience, I kind of, you know, I often had this um, feeling of my team are these amazing young individuals who are just constantly consuming content. And, and that's fantastic from a leadership point of view, right? Because you want your team to be doing that. But it also has its downside, which is it makes you feel like you're you're getting behind. And if you haven't read all of the same content as your team, then you're a kind of lesser, you're, you're, you've got less knowledge than them and how are you going to lead them? Um, so it creates these interesting uh, psychological dynamics. But um, I think what I've realized is, um, you know, we've lived, we've been living through the information age, right? If we think pre-internet, information was not anywhere near as widely available as it is now. Internet was amazing because it's basically said, look, everybody gets access to everything. Incredible. What an incredible 
um, shift for society to go through. But what's happening now off the back of that is we're now saying, well, whoa, 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 hang on. It's too much information for me to yeah. soak in. So what we're now going to have to live through is the curation age. And I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that in hospitality. If you think of beauty hotels and, um, you know, rather than just going to the normal high street restaurants, there are lots of little kind of unique brands. I think we're very much starting to live through the curation age. And I think that will happen and is happening in content as well. And I think psychologically, we need to remind ourselves that um, that the power is not in just you know, dredging the bottom of the ocean for everything, but it's understanding where to get your curated content and be confident that you're you're tapping into the best sources. So, yeah. you know, that might be listen to your favorite podcast once a week or once a month or whatever it is. Um, Which is this one, one obviously. Which obviously is this, this one, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to listen to anything else. Whatever it might be, you know, you have to, I think curation is the is the key. No, I absolutely agree. I was actually, I was related to my, to my next questions, right? I, I think... I realized that I do get stressed by this, like quite a chunk, but not really by things of like being the first to find out that Slack got acquired, right? Like I don't need to follow that quick feed of like yeah. things that you know before anybody else, but I do feel it when it comes to like more in-depth articles, right? So there's a really great article, everybody's talking about it and you're like, mm. I'll read this one as soon as I have time and that time never comes. And then yeah. you just get stressed about it. So. I agree with you. One of the ways I found is to just limit my exposure, right? So try to like keep an eye only on like five sources of information that I know are always valuable and yep. just unfollow everything else. Because if I just keep seeing it, I'm just not putting myself in a good position, right? I'm going to be like, oh, yep. God. Um, what about this internally though? Because as a manager, you want to encourage your team to like learn this kind of stuff. But it's so easy that as they go through the day, you're like, you have this Slack channel where you say, great books, great reads, here's a PDF report or whatnot. Um, but most that people are getting from that is like, holy shit, more stuff to do while I was already packed. I don't think I'm going to keep up with this. How would you find a balance there between like really sending great stuff that you hope your entire team enjoys and reads and learns and not collapsing everybody with FOMO, right? It's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I... I mean, it's, it's a difficult balance to, to strike. Um, my opinion is, first of all, when you're talking about your team, the likely, the chances you've hired smart people who are adults who can take care of seeking out the knowledge they need to seek out, they read the things they're interested in, they ignore the things they're not, etc. And yes, they might need some guidance. In terms of in the work environment, what I would encourage is to go deep on topics as and when you need to. So instead of thinking about all of the things you don't know and trying to fill all of those gaps all of the time, and thus leading to this sense of stress and FOMO, etc., instead think of, okay, so what are we focusing on? For example, maybe we've got an OKR this quarter, which is to, um, I don't know, get our sales system set up and you know our CRM and blah, 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 yeah. right? Okay, now let's go deep on that topic. Let's share articles about that topic Let's read as much as possible. Let's listen to podcast interviews. Let's share those insights. Let's go really, really deep on that topic. And that way, you're actually solving a problem that you have right now. And you're actually going to soak in that information a lot more because you're applying it to your, your real life situation. Whereas if you're reading about the next thing in AI and marketing and how it's going to revenue, okay, interesting or whatever, but, but if you can't apply that to a problem, yeah. It's unlikely you're going to take it in the same way. It's the same with language learning. For example, so when I was, uh, 
I used to live in Manchester in the yeah, UK. Yeah, you had a background and, um, teaching, right? English. Yeah, well, so the, the teaching English thing came a little bit later, but I actually, I took an interest in Spanish um, years ago when I lived I lived in Manchester in the, in the north of UK. Um, so a friend and I, we, we went to Spanish classes um, like once once a week, just one one hour class. And it was a nice little ritual. We went to Spanish class and we went for a few beers and had some Spanish beers afterwards. Nice thing to do. But I could not soak it in at all. I just could not. <laughs> Like, I, I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. And I was always very bad at languages at school, like, um, because they used to always teach through grammar, um, but they would never teach us grammar in English. So they yeah. would talk about past participles and subjunctive, and we'd be like, well, we don't know what this stuff is in English. So it was like a bad teaching method. Um, but yeah, so I went to these Spanish lessons. I couldn't soak anything in. Uh, I couldn't speak any Spanish, couldn't say anything. But when I moved to Spain, and I suddenly had this need and this daily embarrassment you know, like literally embarrassing myself on a daily basis, not being able to say things or ask for things. Suddenly you have this need and that drive to learn is much greater. And also yeah. your concentration, your ability to soak in that information is much greater because you, and then you get to go and practice it. So I think it should be the same in terms of marketing, right? So forget all of the noise. What is the thing that you're trying to do now? Or maybe you want to prepare yourself for in a year's time or whatever it might be and really focus on that now and go deep in the, in the topic and ignore almost ignore everything else. You know, one of the ways I've found to put that into practice, and this is a tip maybe for the audience as well, because one of the reasons you share it is because you're like, I don't want to forget to share this, right? That, like, that's one of the reasons you just said, oh, cool article, I'm just going to share it, like even before you read it, right? Because everybody yeah, thinks yeah. it's great. Uh, one of the ways I've found to do that is that I had like this uh, RSS feed uh, app, right? So I just check it from the blogs that I actually care about like every morning or whatnot, and I tag them. So I, right, so I put a tag nice. on it, CRO, SEM, whatever it is. And then when I'm actually focused on that topic, I'm like, okay, what have I been saving in the last four That's months great. about this topic, right? Because uh, I don't read shit of it because I don't have the time to do it, right? But I, okay, headline a little bit. Okay, got it. Start, tagged, yep. right? And I think, that's I, I think that helps. Yep. Yeah, I like that. But it's good. It, it's, a, it's a good tip that you give because it's... Um, uh, when you don't focus and you try to learn a little bit of CRO today, a little bit of AI tomorrow, it's, it's when you just don't achieve anything. You need to like really focus for long stretches of time in topics yeah. to be able to, to make a dent. Um, exactly. The other one I wanted to get into is that uh, a lot of people get in this obsession of consuming content and delaying execution, right? So when you are like, hey, so we need to do X, Y, or Z, we need to do a new landing page or whatever, and you'll find people following every single blog there is, reading every article, every course in every outlet out there and never get to the actual doing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, you, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons you should focus on doing is because sure, books are great and, and articles are great, but that's the way to really learn, like executing. Yeah. Have you found yourself or you, people on your team like falling in this trap where you're just like, I'm not gonna do this until I know everything there is to know about it and then you just never do it? Yeah. Um so yeah, I think it's it's pretty common, right? The call it, you know, the the nice way to say it is it's being a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, but really, really, <laughs> there's no one. excuse. Yeah. It's just bad practice. It's just bad practice. It's um, especially in marketing. Um, you know, I think the longer you've been in marketing, the more you realize that um, true value comes from just doing stuff, experimenting, and learning from those experiments rather than trying to come up with the perfect um, strategy uh, theoretically because everything's different. We're in different industries. We've got different customers. There's different market dynamics. So you can never get 100% of what you're looking for 
from theory in a book. So really the best way is to, to put it out there. Of course, you should come in with the basics. You know, you should know you should know what a landing page is. You should know how to set goals. You should know all of, all of yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately, um, yeah, the Just learning to is come from, from doing. Exactly. Yeah, and, and to add to the stress of consuming all that content, right? We also talked in previous episodes, and we don't need to go deep, but just to close this topic off, uh, about the pressure you feel for putting out your own content as well, right? I told you about in our earlier call that for me, this podcast feels a little bit like like therapy, right? Because it's a com like a conversation with friends, but in a way, yeah. it's also freaking stressful to coordinate with every guest and so on. Like, I think looking at your social and whatnot, I think that maybe you've already... Um, like resign to that and be like, I'm okay with like not becoming another influencer. But has yeah. this been a, a a big source of stress for you maybe earlier in your career or until recently? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a big source of stress. So I think social media is, is an interesting one, both personally and professionally. It's something that I've let pass by me relatively easily. So definitely earlier on, like, you know, before I had any experience, really, I was focused more on the vanity metrics so my uh, Twitter, for example, I think it has um, quite a few followers, but a lot of that is just rubbish stuff from the early days, quite honestly. And I haven't <laughs> posted anything on Twitter for, for, I think, years. Like, Twitter is literally a, it's something I've completely It's too deserted. fast, dude. It's just too fast. Yeah, and I just, yeah. honestly, I, it's just not where I want to spend my time, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Um, LinkedIn, I'm a little bit more active these days, actually, because I've actually found that LinkedIn is uh, a great network. Rather yeah. than just broadcasting content, it's great for getting feedback and you know, real opinion. It's so it's become quite an interesting platform for actual engagement. So I've actually been a little bit more active on that. Not massively active, but but more active. Yeah. But yeah, in my pri in my private life, I I don't use Facebook um, anymore. I don't have a personal. T well, my personal Twitter is the same as my work Twitter, but I don't <laughs> use it. You know, I, I have all of these handles and things, but I just don't use them anymore. Yeah. Instagram, I like taking like travel photography and things like that, but I, I don't use it to socialize. I, th I think I'm just anti-social, to be honest. Nah, That's but I think it also <laughs> comes comes with overexposure and then you just need to scale it back a bit, right? Like you start getting really excited about these things and you're like, dude, this drives me nuts. I need to like get away from it a bit. Honestly, like channel overload is probably, it is one of the things that stresses me out the most. Like just when you've got email stacking up, you've got WhatsApp oh, stacking up, you've got, and then if you have Messenger and things like this and it's, I, I just don't want all of these channels and sources of, of communication. I'd like to keep it quite, quite simple. Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude, like moving on to your third pain, which is a more work related, like getting to Oliva kind of pain, um, prioritizing quality over quantity in the early days, right? You, you mentioned this about like not tripping, not tripping over yourselves when, when you're, when you're seeing some traction. So when you're seeing early traction in your business, which is the case for you guys, uh, it's easy to get carried away and to try to serve everybody at the expense of the quality of your service, right? An interesting case I've seen here in the Netherlands is uh, an online supermarket called Picnic, which started like very low key in like outskirts of the city or other cities uh, actually, uh, before moving to Amsterdam. And they had a massive, massive waiting list. And I was there thinking like, oh man, you, can't you feel like, oh man, if, if we don't serve these people, they're just going to go somewhere else, right? But no, people actually stick in that wait list, me included, like for a year or whatever it took to get there, right? And you earned your spot. And they were so careful about trying to keep the service level to a high standard that they just refused money, literally. Yeah. Um, how are you? How are you resisting that temptation in the early in the early days of Oliva? Yeah. So just to give some context, like to to your listeners as well. Um, so we've been Oliva's been kind of live open to the world for just over a month now. Yeah. So we're still very very early on. 
uh, and we haven't done we haven't done many marketing pushes or anything like that. And we've been lucky to get a little bit of early traction, you know, some real customers coming through, taking therapy and all of that kind of stuff, which has been great because we can get the feedback, we can do rapid iteration, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all very kind of close knit and, you know, controllable. We're, we're not having to, um, you know, run around like headless chickens. Yeah. Um, well, there's a little bit of that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, now we're starting to talk to a few investors as well. And, you know, investors ask us things like, well, hey, like to be fully scalable, why don't you do things like asynchronous chat? Because that, you know, your margin is going to be higher. Um, it's it's easier to serve many customers with just one practitioner. Um, and then there's, uh, yeah, you know, things things like this. Um, but we just don't believe that's the way to do it. We, we believe you shouldn't start with scale. You should start from the foundations up. Um, we went into this um, not thinking, right, how do we create like a billion dollar company we went into this thinking how do we actually start to make a dent in the in the problem with the mental health industry which is that it's old-fashioned fragmented prices are opaque you know it's it's uh, clinical all of that kind of stuff so you don't solve those problems by just having a super successful you know financially viable business just because you can squeeze the, the margins out of the business um we think that you actually make a dent in that in that problem by focusing on high quality, meaningful mental health care, which is why we say that meaningful. We believe in evidence-based mental health care. And the reality is it doesn't look as good on the business model. You know, this, this <laughs> yeah, meaningful mental health care. Yeah. <laughs> quite frankly, it uh, doesn't look quite as good. Yeah, yeah sorry. No, 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 but that's, that, keep going with that one. I, like, I love that, that idea because uh, one of the things that's interesting is that, well, I think... I think it's coming back a bit, right? So in 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 the last ten years or five years or or whatnot of like Silicon Valley billion and bazillions and so on, um, you all, all it was all about rapid growth, hack that growth and rapid, rapid, rapid. That was all we investors care yep. about. Uh, but I think over several really failed projects like this, right? Projects that were valued in twenty billion and never made a penny. I could go mm. sell cookies outside and make more of a profit tomorrow than yeah. those businesses, right? Um, investors have kind of like be like, oh nice, like profit is not a swear word anymore. Like maybe that sounds actually kind of interesting. Yeah. But there are the lesser, right? So so yeah, how do you make sure that that find that business plan uh, balance there? No, I think you're right. I think the trend is changing a little bit, not for everybody. But for example, we we're only speaking to investors who who believe in long term visions, not just short term rapid growth. Um, and believe in actually making a dent in a problem. Um, so you can you can find those people, and we're lucky to be able to speak to some of them. Um, but yeah, you know the reality is for some for the other camp of investors, what we what we're starting out with maybe doesn't look as good because when you hire highly qualified therapists, for example, um, and you try and create a price point that's accessible for people, um, your margins aren't going to look that great at the beginning because highly qualified therapists deserve to be well paid because they've gone through maybe four to six years of studying to to be able to to give that care um, the solution elsewhere in the market that we're seeing is hire people with less than a year's experience which they deserve to to build up their experience but what we see is a lack of transparency about what you're getting for your for your money or things like asynchronous um, therapy chat which is non-evidence-based there's no um, pure science or at least kind of uh, st statistically significant uh, studies that prove that this is an effective form of therapy, but it's being sold as as just 
normal therapy. You know, Hold on, just, no just to get this right, by that you mean that there's a, there's a single therapist, like maybe chatting with four people at the same time, or how example, does that? For example, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Exactly, so a therapist was, will essentially have a quota to respond to a certain number of chats from their, from their clients within a certain amount of time, usually 24 hours. Right. But it means you have quite a fragmented experience. You know, if you're, you know, if you're feeling uh, utterly exhausted after coming out of a meeting with your manager, and you know you don't you don't really understand this feeling you're having, um, then you go onto a chat, you know, kind of like a WhatsApp kind of yeah. um, experience. There's Tricky. something that doesn't feel quite right to yeah. us about that. As somebody so that's been in therapy before, I, I would, if I can give you any feedback, I, that doesn't sound yeah. fantastic uh, to. To the Agreed. experience I'm used to, right? Like from from actually going deep with somebody. Agreed. But then you have talking therapy, which is highly backed by science, right? So just two people talking, and one of those people is a certified, um, experienced expert, and they know how to guide that conversation, ask the right questions, press the right buttons, all of that kind of stuff to help you yeah. move towards your your goals. That has been proven time and time again to work. From a business perspective, you've got somebody who's highly qualified and demands a, a you know a good a good price, a good salary to give that session, and you've got one person paying for that session. So that's quite hard to make those margins look really, really yeah. um, good. Then you add all of the tech and everything, uh, all the marketing and stuff on on top. Yeah. But we truly believe starting there and building from the foundations upwards is the best way to go. There are plenty of other ways that you can you can make the business healthier um, um, from a balance sheet point of view, yeah. but you first have to get the care right. You have to get that right, because if you don't get that right, it's all just smoke and mirrors, you know? It's all just it's yeah. all just crap, basically. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that is that the more is not always the merrier, right? Like, And this is particularly true for like two-sided marketplaces, which is kind of like what you guys are in a way, right? Where there are several scenarios in which having more traction than you can handle it's not that great. It creates more of, more of an issue than a benefit. Have you guys yeah. kind of like defined what that sweet spot looks for you? Like, what are the signs of like, hey, we're at the at the healthy here with X, Y, or Z numbers, and if we go south or north, we might be going in the wrong direction, or is that still ongoing? I mean, so, so the first thing to say is we don't actually define ourselves as a marketplace, um, and yeah. there's a couple of key reasons for that. One is the, one of the key problems we're trying to solve is that when you look when you look for support from a therapist, one of the most common routes to do that right now is to go to Google and type in something like therapist near me, online therapy, uh, how to find a therapist or something along those lines. What you get given is hundreds of um, individual websites built by therapists. And the reason is because therapists, they study for four to six years, depending on the country they study in. 99% uh, of them go on to be freelance after that. So they're expected, they're suddenly thrown into this world of business and they've not done one minute of studying how to open a business. So they don't know how to do marketing, how to set up their tech stack, how to build a website, how to do communication. And quite frankly, what they tell us is they don't like all of that stuff as well. Yeah. So what that creates is this l huge list of little WordPress websites, you know, where they're super old fashioned, there's clinical jargon, it's hard to navigate because it's not built by people who have set out to communicate this stuff in the best way. Yeah. So a marketplace doesn't really solve that problem because it's just like a fancy version of Google. 
Agree. You still have to look through a big list of therapists and look at their photos and look at all of these clinical terms. Better design, but the same thing at the end of the day. Exactly. A little <laughs> bit nicer, uh, yeah. everything in one place, but you still have to do the same thing. So the problem isn't solved. At Oliva, you can't actually choose a therapist. You can't go onto a list of therapists and choose your therapist. Everything starts with a matching session with our clinical lead, our, our most senior therapist. Um, and she spends time getting to know you your goals and she will make the match to one of the therapists because she has that expertise to do that and that match that initial match is one of the most important um, touch points of your therapy journey uh, and around 70% of people get it wrong which is very expensive and very emotionally emotionally draining yeah. um, so that's a big difference between us and a, and a marketplace you can't actually just go and choose your 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 therapist on, on Oliva um, but to answer your question that sweet spot so yes and no. I mean, you know, we've ran the numbers. We we know more or less kind of where we're going. Uh, but again, we're very much uh, focusing on, you know, get it right for 10 customers, get it right for 100 customers, get it right for 1,000 customers. Literally just focus on each group um, uh, as we as we scale up. Yeah, baby steps. Um, coming, exactly. coming into the last pain, which is the early stage fundraising. Uh, you talked a lot about a little bit how your days are very based on this in the last few weeks. Uh, fundraising is a tricky process because it just doesn't mean, um, I don't mean to mean to to picture investors as evil. We've had before Rand Fishkin on the show who had some like horror stories about his experience, right? But I think it, it really depends because they're just not, that's not the case. They're just trying to, to get their returns and like look for their interest, which is fair. Uh, but in that process, those can really clash with the founder's interests. Right, like that's really tricky. I know, I know you and your found and co-founder uh, are both experiencing this topic, right? But what are the main pains you're going through with making sure you don't sacrifice your own dream in in this process, right? Yeah, good question. I mean, look, the two the two main pains that I experience are one just pure exhaustion from having back to back calls. So yeah. I'm an introvert at heart, and I need time by myself just to just just to reflect, just to recharge. Like I recharge my batteries by being by myself, by ha having a bit of quiet time. That's how I recharge. So when you have literally back-to-back -back calls and you're squeezing in lunch and then you have a team meeting or, or you know, whatever, then you go for a drink or something with somebody, it's, it's, Not it's your exhausting. Jam. No, yeah. Not my jam, exactly. So I, I like to create space and time to be able to think and, and recharge. So that's, so that's probably the main thing, the biggest, the biggest pain. But the other side of it is... Um, and you know, I think a lot of people who have gone through a similar experience of fundraising will connect with is you kind of feel like you're under the microscope, mi microscope constantly, right? Which is that is emotionally draining as well. And if you have many conversations, you deal with many personalities. Some people are very pragmatic and numbers driven. Some people are very kind of vision driven and story driven. So you're constantly um, trying to trying to work out like. Which version of me, which version of my story do I, you know, am I best place to to talk about right now? Um, so that can be very, very tiring. What I will say, though, in, in inv investors' defense, right, is we've had some amazing conversations with amazing people. Like there are so many really good, genuine people out there. You know, these, these like you said, they're not evil people. No, um, this is also not venture capitalist, right? Like you're just looking at angels at this point or also venture capitalist. No, we are, we are speaking to VCs as well. Okay. Um, but it's, look, I mean, we, you know, most of our jobs, not all, but most of our jobs, we, we, we're in something for profit, you know, whether that's personal profit to make the business prof profitable and, and investors are no different, right? Um, what's the challenge is to find somebody who aligns with your values, your vision, etc. 
And that's not their fault. It's just you've got a smaller funnel of people to deal with. So it's quite hard to find those Correct. people. Which is why like referrals and things like this is really um, you know, really a great way to go go. We've been very lucky because we're quite lucky with our network and we've had some great referrals and inbound interest. Um and I think if you're just starting out like first time, it's gonna be harder to get to those people, quite honestly. Yeah. Um but um but they're there, you know, and actually you start to talk to people who just get it. They they completely get it. You don't have to, you know, be bullshitting them. You don't you know, you can just say how it is. Uh, it just depends on your situation and how like desperate you are to get that deal done. Um, and again, about boundaries, you have yeah. to create boundaries. And um, if you find yourself crossing a boundary in terms of you're sacrificing your values and you're changing your vision just to try and get that deal done, it's yes, you'll get some money in the bank now, but it's probably not going to look very yeah. good later on. Yeah, and it's also tricky because like everything, like hiring or whatnot, like like you can be in the same page when you start and 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 you start falling off the same page as you go when the money's already mm. in it, right? So that's also a, a tricky thing. Um, right yeah. before we were discussing prioritizing uh, quality over quantity and when it comes to fundraising, there's one of the mistakes that many companies make, it's getting overfunded, right? It's like taking too much, which comes with trade-offs because by now we know there's no such thing as free money. So have mm. you guys defined wh where that sweet spot is in, in, in like the amount you want to raise and so on to make sure that you're not selling your soul farther than you want? Yeah, I mean, the first thing, look, I'm still learning here, right? I'm not, I'm not an experienced fundraiser at all. In fact, this is the first time I've had to, you know, go this in depth with investors about, yeah. about fundraising. Your co-founder is so a little bit more maybe. Uh, he's more experienced yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he's been through more of this journey. So he's been great to learn from um, during this experience. So I'm, I'm definitely still learning. But what I would say is um, there are a couple of key key kind of things that you need to look out for. So one is how much money do you need? So, you know, what are your plans? Who do you need to hire to be able to get to where you want to go to, et cetera, et cetera? How much runway do you want? You know, how comfortable do you want to be? How aggressive do you want to be? Whatever, right? And that's your own decision. Mm. And that leads to how much money do you need? And the other one is how much dilution of equity are you willing to accept and with those two things you have everything you need really you 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 know you as long as as long as you get this much money minimum and the dilution hasn't gone over this amount then okay you've set your boundaries and you're good and if you have the opportunity to get more money uh, at the same dilution or less okay make yourself more comfortable why not but if you're asking yeah. for more money for more dilution than you're willing to accept then you're crossing a boundary that you've set. Yeah, and also understanding how, how their interest works, right? Like how much, because let's say somebody actually gives you more money and you don't dilute that much more. And you're like, oh, that's fantastic. But mm. when putting in more money, there are steeper expectations of what you guys yep. need to achieve, right? So there will be the pressure where you go like, oh, we're growing great and the investor will be, not really, because I'm expecting an, a 9x return here by next year. Um, that's also a very tricky thing, like understanding really what they expect from the business and make sure you're on the same yeah. page with that as well, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to have dollar signs in your eyes and, uh, you know, you see all of this potential money coming in, but you've got to think, you've got to project yourself six months or a year down the road and imagine things aren't going so well. You know, do you feel okay at that point? Like, are you okay to go back to those investors and say, well, look, we're still working on this. You know, we're not quite there yet. Or are actually going to, be putting yourself under a lot of emotional strain. 
So I think it's important. There's no formula for this as far as I know, right? No, but absolutely. You have to kind of look out for that. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not all about the money, that's for sure. Well, about that, not all being about the money, like the relationship with investors, hopefully it's not all about the money, right? It's also because they bring expertise and they bring advice and they bring that kind of stuff. Are you guys also looking for that? Or in a way you're like, thank you for the money, now leave me alone, <laughs> now let me do my thing. What is your take on that one? Look, we, we want to execute. We want to build. We think we have a good idea of what we need to do next. We're not completely blind in terms of what we need to do next. Um, but it's always good to have smart people on the end of the phone to help out with things, right? Um, so yes, you know, we want people with the right connections, um, with the right knowledge that um, can help us. But we don't want to be thrown into multiple different directions with multiple opinions. You know, we want to stay focused and, and build what we believe in. Um, so we don't just want to take the money and, and say goodbye. But at the same time, we this is our business. This is something we're building. Um, we are very willing for people to be a part of it, but but on our terms and with their advice. That's yeah. the way we think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's uh, uh, that's tricky about this process and that it's people put a lot of focus in it is is your uh, investing deck, right, or investor pitch deck or whatever. Mm. Um, to be honest, like we spend our lives doing landing pages, writing copy, doing all these kinds of stuff, but that thing is hard, right? Because everybody shares with you, no, 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 it cannot be more than ten slides by no means, and you're like, but I have something really cool to add. Yeah, you know, but eleven, never. Yeah. Right, and they share with you the whatever Airbnb deck and tell you this is the exact structure that you have to do your own. Have you had to deal with that pain, or has it been more conversational in your process? Yeah, I mean, on a micro level, look, I mean, we, for example, the first version of our deck, it was more like a keynote, right? You know, like one idea per slide. You know, yeah. lots of breathing space for for the ideas, lots of nice design stuff like that, and we were very proud of it. Okay, this is this is cool. This is kind of thing we would like to read through. And we got some immediate feedback, which was, yeah, beautiful slides, but look, just condense that down a bit. You know, I just want to go, do, do, do. you know, I'm okay, I'm okay reading uh, more than one idea, idea on one slide. And it was good advice. You know, investors, it's not a keynote presentation. People want information. They just want a very simple way to get through that information. So we got that feedback pretty early on. We we adapted and, and it was fine. Uh, it worked out yeah. really well from there. And we made a few iterations to the deck, but yeah, it's not, it's not been a massive pain. It's tricky because you feel sometimes that even the, the, the focus like even goes away from the business you're presenting and it starts like people are like judging you by how you put this together, right? Like, do you have the right, uh, the right structure and so on? Yeah. Um, okay, okay, man, we're starting to, to, to wrap this up. It's been a really cool conversation. I wanted to spend the last few minutes uh, sharing some resources. So you, we usually recommend some stuff that, um, that we listen to, see, whatever it is. Do you have some stuff to share? Yeah, so uh, so I think you mentioned him at the beginning, actually. So a friend of mine, an ex-colleague, um, has a podcast called Churn FM. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in SaaS especially, I, I really recommend this. So it's genuinely one of those podcasts where you come out with actionable insights. You know, you can actually go and implement some of this stuff. He's a great interviewer as well, like very humble and just, you know, he's able to get good information out of people. Um, so yeah, I really recommend Churn FM. Um, there's a book I, I I read it some time ago, but I actually um, I've been talking about it to quite a few people recently, both within Oliva, because you know we we see ourselves as very much designing experience. We're not just giving therapy; we're designing experiences around therapy. Um, 
Uh, but it's a book called The Power of Moments. Um, and I can't recommend it enough. It it talks about um, the well, the power of moments, the power of small <laughs> moments. And for example, there's an analogy of um, going to Disneyland, and you know, from the beginning to the end, there's many, many moments you go through, right? From buying an ice cream to standing in line for three hours to being on the roller coaster to having an argument with your kids, whatever it might be, and then eventually leaving. Um, but if if you can put just one or two big high moments in there a lot of a lot of the low moments actually disappear when you look back and rate that experience so it's really interesting for brands to think in that way as well like how can we strategically um increase the power of the positive moments that people have with with our brands uh it's a great read okay i'd recommend that all right i'm gonna wrap it up by uh recommending actually i I usually recommend business stuff but i'm gonna go uh, outside of that today and recommend a novel I, I don't read many of them, but I, I'm really happy reading the, the one I'm reading right now. It's called Anxious People by a Swedish author called Frederick Backman. It's super interesting. It just sounds like a really f- cool, funny way to portray how freaking stressful our world is and how people end up doing all, course, all sorts of crazy stuff, like robbing a bank in this case, uh, oh. just by the situations we get put on, right? Like a little bit like the message that you get from Breaking Bad, but in a more a comedic, really, really f- intertwined way. It's super fun. So for everybody... Uh, yeah, dealing with this crazy world that we're doing this year in particular, I think it puts a lot of things in perspective. All right, dude, nice. really happy to have you uh, today. Thank you for the conversation. It's been really fun. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Thanks, Tacho. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. See you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.